Have you had the experience of seeing your culture differently? Seeing your culture through outside eyes. Sometimes we don't know that we have a culture until we bump into another one. Or until we travel to another place. Interact with other kinds of people. We recently sent a missions trip abroad who spent some time in China and South Korea. Those are the kinds of experiences where you begin to see your own culture through the lens of another. My wife and I moved overseas seven years ago and spent six years in Dubai in the United Arab Emirates. It was interesting for us learning about other cultures, but also learning a little bit about how other cultures viewed us as Americans. It's interesting the stereotypes that Americans can have through the eyes of other cultures. Two of those stereotypes are these. Whether or not they're true or not, this is how we're viewed by outsiders. So it can be instructive for us. The first one that we always hear is that Americans are entitled. That Americans are entitled. That we go around the world declaring what it is that we deserve. The other is that we are independent and self-sufficient. That we are unwilling to ask for help from others and unwilling to admit that we need help from others. I wonder what you think of these descriptions, if you relate to them at all. Maybe you're proud of them in some way. That's what it means to be American. We are the greatest nation on earth. We deserve nothing but the best. Or I wonder if you are this self-sufficient, independent one, believing that you should only have the things that you have earned for yourself. Remember, as a kid growing up in rural America, listening to country music, a song by Aaron Tippin in the 90s called I Got It Honest, which encapsulates this idea of being self-sufficient. He talks about his house. He says, it isn't much, but one thing is for sure, I got it honest. He talks about his paycheck. It isn't much, but he says, every single penny I'm paid, I got it honest. And then... The often repeated line in the song, because if I didn't earn it, I don't want it. That way I can always say, I got it honest. As you think about these two categories, that of the entitled or the self-sufficient, you know that both of these views are anti-Christian. Because they both view grace, not as a gift given to the undeserving, but as a right owed To the deserving. Let me say that again. Both of these views, the views of the entitled or of the self-sufficient, both of these views are anti-Christian because they view grace not as a gift given to the undeserving, but as a right owed to the deserving. In our passage this morning, Jesus shows grace and kindness to two people. A centurion, a person of political and social standing, Someone that you might think would be entitled. And to a widow who had just lost her only son. One that you might think is deserving. But as we consider together Jesus' kindness to these two people, I hope that we will understand more of who Jesus is, what he came on earth to accomplish, and more about the salvation that he offers. Understanding that this salvation isn't getting what we deserve receiving God's good gift, though we are undeserving. Turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 7. 
Luke chapter 7. We're going to be looking at Luke chapter 7, verses 1 to 17. Luke is one of four New Testament Gospels. It's the third in your Bibles. It's one of these four Gospels in the Bible that give us a survey for accounts of the life and ministry of Jesus. As we saw so far in the book of Luke, this Jesus came as was prophesied through a miraculous birth. He was born of a virgin, as we read about in Luke chapter 1. He was born poor and in a nondescript location in Bethlehem in Luke chapter 2. And he was only recognized by a handful of poor and insignificant people. But as Jesus came in a very nondescript way, and as he came and was unnoticed, unlike the king that he was, he would demonstrate who he is through his life and his ministry. We've been seeing his ministry through his teaching and through his miracles. And Luke chapter 6 is his most extended sermon in the book where he lays out what his kingdom is like, who it is that are blessed by him. And as Luke now moves on to Luke chapter 7, we see that through these these accounts that he lays out for us, that he's helping us to understand something of the salvation that Christ has come to bring for us. Uh, As we begin, if you're taking notes, our main point is this. This is our main point. Jesus has come with great authority to show great compassion. Jesus has come with great authority, to show great compassion. We'll have two points this morning. Verses 1 to 10, great authority, and verses 11 to 17, great compassion. Pray that this uh, time together is a blessing to all of us. Let's begin with point number one, great authority, verses 1 to 10. Let me read those first 10 verses for us. This is God's word. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this, for he loves our nation. And he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Point number one, great authority. You see the the situation here in our, our first passage. A centurion... A Roman official has a servant who's highly valued by him who is sick 
and on the verge of death. A centurion uh, in Jesus' day was both a military and a political leader. The centurion was in a high position in the Roman world. The centurion was Caesar's representative politically and militarily in a, a certain area. Here, this centurion seems to be in Capernaum. The, the word centurion, you think of century, means a, a, a soldier or a military official over a hundred soldiers. That's where the term uh, came from. You can think of like a, a major or maybe a, a general in the army. Someone with much position and authority. Now, this centurion sends elders and leaders of the Jews to go to Jesus and to, to plead on his behalf, to ask Jesus to come and to heal his servant. And what's interesting is the way that they make their request. How do they present this centurion to Jesus? Look at what they say in verse 4. He's deserving. He's worthy to have you do this. Look at what he's done for us. Now, it is fascinating. This centurion is very unique. It's very unique to have a Roman political leader with sympathies towards those of any other religion, let alone the Jews. The Jews were despised and hated in general in the Roman Empire. But here, this centurion is known for being kind to those uh, under his care in Capernaum. Not only has he been kind to them, he's even, it looks like, used money entrusted to him to build a synagogue for them and to allow them to worship openly. A remarkable thing. This centurion seems to have some sympathies for the Jewish faith. And when he hears about Jesus and the power that has been given to him to heal, he asks for these leaders to go and send for him. I wonder if you consider in your relationship with God that you deserve things from God. I wonder what you think you deserve from God. You know, this might take different forms in our hearts and in our minds. It might be some just general entitlement. Isn't God the one who gives good things and we're the ones who receive them? Isn't it God's job to do good to us? He created us. Isn't it our right to receive good from God? Or maybe it, it takes other more subtle forms. When we pray to God, do we trot out all of the good things we've done for Him and say, God, look at all the things I've done. You, you owe this to me, right? Do you know the Gospel tells us that this isn't the case at all? That we don't, in fact, deserve anything good from God. The Bible tells us that we are sinners, all of us. That what we actually deserve from God is not goodness from Him, is not His grace and gifts from Him, but what we actually deserve is punishment. What we actually deserve is His right and just wrath against sinners like you and me. The Bible tells us the bad news that all of us are fallen, that all of us have turned from God and rejected Him as the good and loving creator and ruler over us that he is. And rather than delighting in him and enjoying him as we were created to do, we've done the opposite. We've turned our backs on him. And we've decided, rather than wanting God on the throne, that we've, we'd rather rip him off of his throne and put ourselves there. 
be the ones in charge, the ones calling the shots. The amazing thing about the gospel is though we deserve nothing good from God, yet God has still graciously initiated towards us. Not giving us what our sins deserve, but in His patience and in His long-suffering kindness. He is actually initiated by sending His Son Jesus into the world. Jesus to come and to live the perfect life that we didn't live and to die a sacrificial death on the cross. Because we deserved it? No, but because He is merciful and kind and gracious even to those who deserve the opposite. The the gospel message is not about us being worthy of God's kindness and affection or us earning it or deserving it in some way. No, the gospel message is that though we deserve God's wrath, yet He offers us kindness and mercy and salvation. If we will have what this centurion has and had, genuine faith. We see now a second group of messengers coming to the centurion. As Jesus is on the way, he seems willing to come and to heal this servant. He seems willing to be interrupted and to go and to show kindness and healing to this servant in need. The centurion seems to have had a second thought about this and decides to send more messengers, now a group of friends. And the second messengers, rather than the first, holding out that he's worthy, say, Look at the contrast, the opposite. Look at what the centurion says through the second set of friends, starting in verse 6. Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. Look at, first of all, this centurion's remarkable humility. If you were a centurion, if you were a person with much political and military strength, would you be prone to such humility as you reached out to a healer? I think he could probably have commanded for Jesus to be arrested and brought to him, but he didn't do that. No, he approaches Jesus with humility and says, I don't deserve for someone like you to be under my roof. But not only does he have remarkable humility in understanding something of his unworthiness as a sinner before God, he also shows remarkable faith. And Jesus marvels at his faith. Look at how he expresses it, starting in verse uh, 8. Sorry, verse 7. He says, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. I didn't presume to come to you. But don't even come, he says. Say the word and let my servant be healed. Say the word, Jesus, and it will be done. You don't even need to come here. Notice his faith. And notice how he's reasoned to this. Verse 8, I too am a man set under authority. That is... I have those that are under me and those that are over me. I have a delegated authority from on high, and I delegate authority down. And even I, with my authority, can simply say a word. And my word carries the weight of Caesar himself. So that when I say things, 
the weight of Caesar himself is behind it, and things happen. And so he reasons, if this Jesus is able to do these things, he has authority, the very authority of God, and that means he doesn't need to come under my roof to perform this miracle. He has great faith. Unexpected humility, no entitlement, no explanation of his works and his good deeds, and he has unexpected faith. He simply asks Jesus to say the word. He understands who Jesus is. That he is the one who has come with all authority from God. God himself in human flesh. As you consider what Jesus says here about this man, he marvels about it. Look at uh, verse 9. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. Turning to the crowd that followed him, he said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. Notice what it is that delights the Savior and what it is that delights God. The fact that Jesus is amazed here, I think, is a demonstration of his humanity. God is never surprised or amazed because he knows all things, but Jesus is. Jesus marvels. In his humanity, he is seeing something new and surprising. God delights in faith. You notice God doesn't delight in demonstrations of great independent strength, but in a simple trust in his strength. The gospel message calls all of us to have such faith in God that when we approach God and seek to enter into a relationship with him, we're not trotting out our good deeds. And we're also not declaring our own strength before God. But we're simply trusting that God is strong enough to save sinners like us. We are to be approaching him like this centurion with humility, realizing we deserve nothing from God and are not worthy of his kindness, and yet faith, trusting that he, and he alone, is able to save us. If you're here and you're not a Christian, let me encourage you to turn aside from any sense of entitlement or what it is that you deserve from God and humble yourself realizing you are not worthy, and come to Christ, realizing that he is strong enough to save a sinner like you. Repent today. I think there's more that we can learn here from this passage. Not only an understanding of salvation, that it simply comes by faith in the authority and the power of God to save. I think we can also learn from Jesus' example here as those who know him, those of us who are Christians. Look at how Jesus uses his authority. You notice his willingness to be interrupted in order to do good and to show kindness to others. I wonder if you this morning are that type A personality who structures all of your life and have an unwillingness to be interrupted, even, even for those in need around you. Let me encourage you to follow Jesus' example here. He was entitled as God himself in human flesh to control his schedule, and yet he was willing to be interrupted in order to show kindness to others. Let me encourage you, brothers and sisters, to be willing to change your plans if there are those around you in need who need help from you. Let me encourage you to be willing to follow Jesus' example here and to make last-minute changes in plans because there are those around you who need help and encouragement. 
perhaps a fellow member or someone around you in need of the gospel. Look also how Jesus uses his authority here. Does he use it for selfish gain or for selfish ends? No, he exercises his great authority, which the centurion understands. He leverages his great authority for the good of those around him. He uses authority not for his own ends, but to be a blessing to others. I wonder what kind of authority you might have this morning. You know, God has delegated authority to you if you have it in this world. Like this centurion had delegated authority from on high. It was delegated, but he was also accountable for it. Do you know any authority that you have in this world has been delegated to you by God? And you are not to use it however you would like for your own selfish ends, but like Christ did for the good of those under your care. Authority is not to be wielded and abused, but leveraged and stewarded for the the good of those under us. I wonder, husbands, how you're using the good authority that God has given you. Are you using it for the blessing of your wife? Are you using it to be uh, an encouragement to her? Or are you using it as uh, a muscle to be flexed to get what you want? I wonder, fathers, mothers, how are you using the authority God has given you as parents? Are you using it to yell and shout and control your kids? Or are you using it to patiently and lovingly teach? And even at times, correct and discipline your children in love for their good. Not simply for your own or for your own peace and quiet. Also look for a moment here at what it is that causes Jesus to be amazed and to marvel. You see that it's faith. It isn't the strength of this centurion. It isn't his political gravitas or position. It's his simple faith. Christ that marvels him. You know, we as Christians should be growing, not in self-sufficiency or entitlement, but in more and more faith and humility as we continue on the Christian life. I wonder, Christian, if your faith is growing as time goes by, if you're able to see more and more of God and of Christ and delight in him more and more with each passing day. I wonder if you're growing and being able to trust him with more and more in your life. Or if it's actually going the other direction. I hope that we can be the kind of church that surrounds one another with help as we seek to grow in faith together. So much of our discipleship should be simply this, helping us grow, not in self-sufficiency or strength, but in faith. And learning to trust God more and more and draw near to Him and delight in Him. Humbly realizing all that we don't deserve and yet all of his kindness and grace to us in Christ. Let's be growing together, brothers and sisters, in faith, not in entitlement or self-sufficiency. That's point number one, great authority. Point number two, great compassion. Chapter 7, verses 11 to 17. And I want you to notice that Luke is putting these side by side for a reason. In the previous account, Jesus heals a sick man on the verge of death, showing his authority over sickness and disease. Now Jesus encounters a young man who is already dead. And look at how Jesus exercises authority now. And look at the spheres over which Jesus has authority. Let's 
read. I'll start in verse 11. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched uh, the bier or some kind of coffin. And the bearers stood still, and he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. Jesus Now, not only heals a person on the verge of death, he goes even more. He literally brings a person back from the grave, showing his authority not only over sickness and disease, but authority over life and death. The authority to turn back the effects of the curse. The authority to resurrect the dead. Notice the scene here. Rather than a person of great position like a centurion, we now have the opposite, a lowly widow, a woman without a husband. Her husband has died. And a widow who's now lost not only her husband but her only son. This woman is in a hopeless situation. In a day and age with no Social Security or Medicare or Medicaid, this woman is without any hope of financial provision. In her day and age, it would be children providing for the parents as they get older. And now this woman with her only son now lost. She's hopeless, utterly discouraged, despairing, alone. As Jesus enters into this scene, how does he respond? How does he respond to this heartbreaking scene? Notice what he does. He acts. He doesn't draw back. No, he initiates. He doesn't withdraw. He approaches. And with all of the authority that he has, he speaks a word. And says, young man, I say to you, arise. You see the authority of his word. You see who Jesus is here. Just as God in Genesis chapter 1 speaks and all of matter comes into existence, now the Creator Himself in human flesh speaks and the dead come alive. This is God Himself in human flesh, the one with authority over life and death. And when He speaks, those that have gone into the grave come back. He restores this woman, her son, her only son, to life. Jesus is demonstrating his authority. And he's showing that he is the one, the only one, who can save from death. He is the only one through whom salvation can come. And he has actually come, not only to show that he will one day heal all of his people, but he will also raise 
the dead. He will also bring his own back to life. And he will comfort them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And one day, all of his people will be with him forever in a place where there is no crying or tears or weeping or funerals. He is the one who has come to banish death and pain and suffering. As you consider Christ here, do you know that He and He alone is our hope for salvation? And that all of us are like this widow, completely hopeless, helpless, discouraged and despairing on our own. This is the position all of us are in in relation to God. Lost, alone. And yet this is what Christ has come to do to save helpless and hopeless sinners. And He's come to do it with His Word. The Gospel tells us that God justifies sinners. He justifies the ungodly. He declares us with a Word to no longer be sinners, but because of what Christ has done, He declares us with His Word to now be right before Him. Not based on what we have done, what we're entitled to, or what we have earned or deserve. But now, what Christ has earned and what Christ deserved is accounted to us. This is what Christ has come to do in His salvation. You notice the kind of Savior that we have here. The kind of example that we now have for those of us who have come to know Him and to receive salvation from Him. We now have an opportunity by the power of the Spirit to start imitating our Savior, to start walking in His footsteps, to start living in some way like Him and being turned more and more with each passing day more and more into the image of Christ. That we will start imitating our Savior by the way that we conduct ourselves. We have an opportunity as men particularly to express godly masculinity like Jesus did on this day. Initiating for the good of those in need and those under His care. So much of masculinity, biblical masculinity, what it is that we're called to do as men is seen right here in Jesus' actions. Here is a woman in need who is hurting. A woman who is utterly vulnerable. And what does Jesus do? Does He withdraw? No, He initiates. He moves towards. And what does He do with His biblical masculinity? He acts for the good of those under His care and those in need. He initiates for the good of those under His care. I wonder what Jesus had on His mind and heart in this scene. I wonder if He thought of His own mother. It's clear by the time Jesus goes to the cross, His own Father has died. And on the cross, when His own mother is there weeping, watching Him die... Jesus actually makes sure that his own mother, who is a widow, is cared for and has a home in the household of faith. And he makes sure that the Apostle John will care for her now that he is heading back to his father. I wonder if he has his own mother in mind as he moves towards this widow who's lost her only son. But regardless of what is on his mind, it's clear that Jesus has great compassion And he initiates for the good and the care and the provision of this woman who is hurting. 
You know, biblical masculinity isn't about necessarily great displays of physical strength. It may include that. But so much of biblical masculinity is a willingness to have compassion. To use your strength not to hurt, but to help. To use your strength not to abuse, but to care for and provide for. If you're here and you're a man, you have been called by God to use that masculinity to provide for and to protect and to lead those who are weak and vulnerable that are under your care, whether it's a wife or children or maybe just other family members around you or members of your church. Your masculinity was given to you in order to care and to help for those uh, and to help those that are uh, under your authority. If you're here and you're a single man, I wonder if you are growing and being able to exercise godly masculinity. Let me encourage you to take small steps to try to do this. Maybe you're thinking, well, I don't have a wife. I don't have children, so I guess I don't need to be masculine. That's not true. There's ways that you can exercise that here in the church or maybe in your family at home. Looking out for your mother, for your sisters, for your brothers. Looking out for those here in the church who are in need. Let me encourage you, young men, to be learning to initiate like Jesus. To meet needs, to to care for those around you. To help those that are hurting, to assist those in need. And maybe something as utterly practical as walking another single girl to the car at night after you've had a hangout with a group of singles, making sure that she makes it to her car and makes it home without being in danger. That might sound small, but I think that's a wonderful demonstration of masculinity as you're looking to seek for the the protection of those around you. It may mean using the finances you have, as little as they are, to be a blessing to others. Maybe picking up someone's coffee or boba. Small ways of providing for those around you, looking out for those in need, finding ways to provide for others rather than simply taking. Do you know it isn't just men who are to be imitating Jesus here? We are to be, as Christians, learning to have great compassion like our great Savior. We, as a church, should be growing and being able to exercise compassion and mercy on those around us. It says in our, in our church covenant that we will rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Uh, I was in a conversation this week uh, where it became clear that it's easier to do the first than the second. I think all of us are pretty good at showing up at a party and rejoicing with those who rejoice. I think most of us know how to get out there on the dance floor and rejoice with those who rejoice. Be excited with those who are getting married or show up with a meal for someone who's had a baby. Somehow we're not as good at the second part, at weeping with those who weep, at drawing near to those who are hurting, at knowing what to do or what to say when we encounter those who are in pain those who are in confusing circumstances, those that have lost a loved one or maybe lost a baby or someone dealing with some besetting sin. 
And when we don't know what to do, I think too often we just withdraw. Well, at least I'm rejoicing with those who rejoice. Maybe someone else can weep with those who weep. No, all of us are called to do both. When there are those around us who are hurting and in pain, we're not to withdraw, but actually to draw near. We're not to to hold back, but we're actually to initiate and to approach. So much of this showing compassion as a church is simply uh, in the title of a, a recent book, simply being there. Dave Furman has written a book called Helping Those Who Are Hurting, and the title is Being There. I love that title. So often what is needed with those who are weeping and hurting isn't for you to show up and meet needs or try to fix things or speak truth. Though some of those things may be helpful at different times. So often what is needed is just someone to draw near and to be there with them, to help them lift that load, to help share some of that burden. As Paul says in Galatians 6, bear each other's burdens. And in this way, fulfill the law of Christ. So often, just drawing near and being there, being present, attempting to feel something of what they're feeling and to take it on as, as your own, as we are members of the body of Christ, and not see it as other. And see yourself as independent, but to see them as yours and your own and us as family and this person's pain as your own. And in bearing each other's burdens, it's like that image of a yoke where two oxen or two workhorses share the load together. You come alongside someone and you, you, you offload some of that pain and that hurting and you take it on yourself. I love that Jesus does this for us. You think of the the famous passage where he says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Then he says something very interesting. He says, My yoke is easy and my burden is light. What, Jesus? I thought those who were weary and heavy laden were to come to you for rest. Why are you giving me a yoke? Why are you giving me a burden? But in the image of a yoke and of the burden that he gives, it's the image of literally a yoke was a a wooden um, tool that would go across the shoulders of two oxen. And it would allow two to pull a heavy load rather than just one. The yoke that Jesus gives us is a yoke where he is one of them and we come alongside him. And when Jesus is yoked with you, who do you think does all the pulling of the burden? Jesus does. When he calls you to himself and when you take his yoke, he carries the burden for you. He does this in your salvation. He is the only one who can lift the burden of your sin. He also does this in the Christian life. He and he himself carries the burden of our pain and our suffering. And as he took the weeping from this mother by giving her back her her son. He does the same for you and me by lifting our burdens, by taking them himself. One of the ways that he does this with his children is by allowing other of his children to come and to help carry those loads. We can become vessels in which Christ carries the burdens of others. 
Before we conclude, I want you to look at a passage really quickly in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. I want you to notice what it is that the Apostle Paul has to say about this. About weeping with those who weep. About comforting those that are hurting. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction. See what he's holding out here for us, that our God is a comforting God, that our God is a compassionate God, that our God is a God who lovingly comforts us. Now there's a bit of mind-bending that goes on here. There are some things here that are um, surprising. Notice that he doesn't comfort us by removing all affliction from us. He doesn't comfort us by giving us all worldly comforts so that we never have pain and hurting. No, He comforts us in, in the midst of all of our affliction. This is a remarkable thing that our loving God puts us into places in which we are afflicted so that we can then in the affliction experience His comfort and love. Our God loves us so much that He afflicts us with much pain and suffering and difficulty so that He can then come alongside us and comfort us in the midst of it. And notice one of the purposes that He does this, that He comforts us in the midst of all of our afflictions. Verse 4, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. We see what God is doing. He has very big and complex plans for His people. And that includes your trials and mine. It includes your pain and suffering and mine. And it includes Him taking us through the valley of affliction so that He can then surround us with His comfort and love so that we can then be ministers of comfort and encouragement to others with the comfort we've received from God. Now notice the adjectives here. It's very important. He comforts us in all of our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who've gone through exactly what we've gone through? No, what does it say? He comforts us in all of our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort that we've received. You know, you don't have to have gone through the exact same thing, the exact same suffering, in the exact same way as a brother and sister in Christ has gone through in order to be a minister of the comfort of Christ. If you have lived in this life as a Christian for very long, you have suffered. Christ has promised it to us that we will suffer. And if you have suffered, you have experienced something of the comfort of Christ. And that means you have something to offer to your fellow brother or sister in this church who is suffering. Now, there may be particular times and ways in which someone who's gone through an exact suffering can minister in a unique way. But what this passage says is if you've suffered at all and experienced something of Christ's comfort and love, you have something to give to others. And it isn't yourself. It isn't your strength and your experience. What you offer is Christ and Christ's comfort. 
Let me encourage you, brothers and sisters, to be ministers of comfort to one another, to be imitating our Savior by having compassion on those around you, by being willing to, to just be there and to weep with those who weep, and to be willing, as awkward as it might feel, to just show up, even if you feel like you have nothing to say. Simply your presence and your prayers may be all someone needs to have enough of that burden lifted to be able to go to sleep that night. You know, this can apply not only to family members uh, in the church here, but uh, in other areas as well. You know, we need to be having compassion uh, as individual Christians at home. You know, husbands, you need to be having compassion on your wives. You need to be drawing near and entering in the particular struggles and the pain that your wife is going through. You shouldn't be stiff-arming your spouse, but having compassion on them and drawing near to them, listening to them, asking good questions, and being willing to help ease your spouse's burden. Wives, the same. You have an opportunity to show compassion to your husband. Sometimes it's those closest to us that can be hardest for us to show compassion to. Spouses, kids, family members. I encourage you, fathers and mothers, to have compassion on your children. Sometimes we can struggle with this. We learned in the equip class this morning about discipline. And so often we can get exasperated with our children and be frustrated with them and not have compassion on them to enter into their world and understand something of what they're going through and try to remember what it was like for us when we were little and what it is that we needed from our parents. Let me encourage you, fathers and mothers, to have compassion on your children, to draw near to them. As we conclude, let me point you one last time to our Savior, His great authority, and how he uses it to show great compassion. I'm reminded of the, the f- famous hymn, Come Ye Sinners, Poor and Needy. I love what's captured in this hymn. Come, sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus, ready, stands to save you, full of pity, love, and power. You know, our salvation is not dependent on what it is that we have earned or what we think we deserve. Our salvation is rooted on a compassionate and merciful Savior. Look at what the hymn goes on to say. I will arise and go to Jesus. He will embrace me in His arms. In the arms of my dear Savior, oh, there are 10,000 charms, 10,000 delights in the arms of Christ. Come, thirsty, come and welcome. God's free bounty glorify. True belief and true repentance, every grace that brings you nigh. Come, you weary, heavy laden, lost, and ruined by the fall. If you wait until you're better, you will never come at all. View him prostrate in the garden. On the ground, your maker lies. On the bloody tree, behold him, sinner. Will this not suffice? Lo, the incarnate God ascended, pleads the merit of his blood. Venture on him, venture holy. Let no other trust intrude. And the last line, let not conscience make you linger or delay, nor of fitness fondly dream. That is, don't dream of getting to a place where you will be fit enough to deserve God's kindness in Christ. All the fitness He requires is for you to feel your need of Him.
our Christ has great authority and he uses it to show great compassion on sinners like you and me. We cannot come to him in any entitled or self-sufficient way. But all he requires of us is to feel our need of him. Let me encourage you, brothers and sisters, to draw near to him in faith, to learn more of his compassion, and then learn to imitate him by showing compassion to others. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Oh, Father, we give you praise that you are so kind and merciful and compassionate on sinners like us. We give you praise that you do not give what we deserve. You don't treat us as our sins deserve, but you've treated us according to your mercy and compassion. Pray that if there's any here that are holding out on rejecting their own works, what it is that they deserve, that they will turn from any sense of entitlement to Christ and Christ alone. We pray for those of us who've come to know this merciful Christ. We would be growing and knowing how to exemplify such mercy and compassion to those around us, whether in evangelism or in kindly rejoicing with those who rejoice and weeping with those who weep here in the church. We pray you'd give us grace to know what to do. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.